The call of Abraham is one of the more important events of the Old Testament. In choosing Abraham, the main point of Abraham is God choosing the, the family, the man, the family, through whom the Messiah will come. Messiah being Jesus, the one who will make redemption possible through His life, His sinless life, His sacrificial death, and His victorious resurrection. This is a, the call of Abraham is significant. It is starting the massive, it's starting the path to bring for Jesus to come into the world. The call begins with God calling on Abraham to trust Him. I mean, that's the the basic part of the call. Just trust God and obey God. At this point, God has not really done or said anything tangible for Abraham. He gives him promises about what what will be, what can be. But before Abraham will experience any of these promises, any of these things come to pass, he must embark on a life of faith. He must trust God, and he must trust God enough to do what God wants him to do. If Abraham wants to experience the promises God has said he would give him, then he must answer God's call to a living faith. Now there is, in, in many ways, a great parallel to the Christian life in this. Jesus initially calls us through the gospel, the call of salvation. Uh, in the call to the gospel, the call to Jesus for salvation, it too contains many promises, as Abraham's called it. The forgiveness of sins, being made into a new creation, the Holy Spirit living within us, adopted as children of God, the ability to have a genuine relationship with God, being able to pray and know God hears and cares, heaven being your eternal home, and, and many, many more. And Jesus calls on us to believe Him, to believe He can do these things, to believe He, he will do these things. But none of this is given to us, and none of this happens for us until we embark on our life of faith, until we answer Jesus' call. It's all in the realm of this can be yours, this should be yours. This will be yours if, if you answer my call. There's no taste. There's no none of that until we call, answer the call of Jesus. But Jesus' call to a, a living faith, it doesn't end after salvation. We don't repent, repent of our sins, receive Christ, and then that's the end. Really, that's the beginning of our living faith, of our life of faith. From that moment on... Jesus is continually calling us. And He's calling on us to believe Him. They're calling on us to trust Him. He's calling on us to demonstrate we have a living faith in Him. Jesus will, as we begin to follow Him, He shows us truth from His Word. And then He calls us to adapt our lives, to change our lives based on upon what He has shown us to be true. He, he works in us to show us, here is sin in your life. You need to get rid of it. Here is something good in your life. You need to start doing. And He wants us to show we believe Him. We trust Him by doing the things He wants us to do. There's never a time in our lives as disciples of Jesus when He is not in one way or another calling us to live out our living faith. Disciples of Jesus are meant to live by faith and not by sight. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. At all times, Jesus is calling on us to do this. This is never in question. The only question is how will we answer? 
Tonight what I want us to do is I want us to look at the call of Abraham from Hebrews 11. And we're going to see some of the ways Jesus calls us and what a response of faith looks like. So if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10, should be on page 926 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11 and 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Title of the message tonight is the, "Is Faith to Answer the Call." Faith to answer the call. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We're thankful for the privilege we have to gather tonight to to pray, to cry out to you. Know you hear and care about the requests that we've talked about. To study your word. To give our chan- ourselves an opportunity to hear what you have for us through your word and through your spirit. Guide us tonight to have ears to hear. And let us have the faith to answer whatever call Jesus is placing upon our lives right now at this point. Help us to to respond in faith, to do the things you want us to do. And let, let our lives just continually demonstrate to a lost and a dying world, we believe in a great God. We believe in a Savior who came and died and rose again. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Aren't you maybe seated? Abraham, as I said, is a significant person in, in really all of God's Word. The Apostle Paul refers to him as, as the father of those who believe, the father of faith. He is often held up as an example of what a, a living faith looks like, which is an accurate description of what Abraham was like. Abraham's entire life was a life of faith. He took God at His Word and his life demonstrated he believed God. He made the decision to trust God and that changed everything. He lived in the present trusting the future promises of what God said He would and He could do through him. He honestly expected God would keep every promise He had given him. And this this life of faith began with His decision to answer God's call and go where God wanted Him to go and do what God wanted Him to do. Now, While Abraham is an example of faith, one of the the overarching truths repeated through God's Word various times in various ways is all of our heroes of the faith were just like us. They were flawed. They wrestled with doubts. They had issues. No one other than Jesus is held up in God's Word as the epitome of perfection in the way things ought to be. And, And this is intentional. This is done so that we can identify with them. We can learn from them, both in the bad and say, gosh, I don't want to do that. But from the good, I want to try to be like that. And we do that and we can do that because they were just like us. Like Elijah, it says in James has a nature like ours. Abraham also had a nature like ours. The reason this is important is... 
When we look at what Abraham did and how God called him and how to respond, we mustn't get the idea that these people in Hebrews 11 or anywhere were these spiritual superheroes. They had attained a level of faith and experience that none of us were able to achieve. By and large, what separates them from us is the way we respond to Jesus and the way they responded to God. Jesus is always calling us to a life of faith. He is always calling us to a living faith. And we must answer this call. So that the key truth tonight, and I'll repeat this over and over, Jesus is calling us and we must answer. Jesus is calling us and we must answer. So there's four ways In the life of Abraham, we see Jesus is calling us. Jesus calls us individually. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he was called. Abraham was called. Right. What stood out to me about this is Abraham alone was called to this life and to this mission. Abraham lived in the the land of Haran. It was, from what I understand, it was a... A civilization. There were cities and there were buildings and there were people. So Abraham was not isolated out in the wilderness and there was no one but him. He was living in a thriving metropolis for the day. And yet he is the only one who is called. Not everyone in Haran was called to leave their father's house and go to a land God would show them. Just Abraham. And what remind, this reminded me of the words from the, from the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, every man is called separately and must follow alone. But we are called individually. And there are three aspects to Jesus calling us individually. And, and the first is just that Jesus calls us individually. We're told in Isaiah 43 and 1, God calls us by name. He doesn't just holler out, hey you, and whoever turns around is the one He was talking to. He he calls us by name when He calls us to salvation. And Jesus, when He called His twelve disciples, He didn't just stand and say, hey, who wants to be my disciple? He went along the shore where Peter, James, and John were, and He said, you... Follow me. He went to Matthew, where Matthew was receiving custom, and he said, you, follow me. He went to them as individuals. He calls us as individuals. He calls me as an individual. He calls you as an individual. This call is always going out from Jesus to us. He is always calling you to be something, to do something. Or to change something. He's always calling me to be something. To do something or to change something. He is always calling. Jesus calls us individually. But we're also called to an individual path. But Jesus not only calls us individually, He calls us to an individual path. And while there are some things we are all called to do and to be, there's also individual paths Jesus takes us on. Even on the things Jesus calls us on that we're all to to be and to do, we are likely called to an individual path to get there. For example, Jesus is calling all of us to holiness. But the path 
that you will go on will likely differ from the path I will go on for various reasons. There may be issues I struggle with you have conquered long ago. Sin that I am tempted by, that I struggle with, that you don't have to worry about. You don't deal with those. And so the path Jesus is calling you to holiness is is a variant of the path He's calling me. Now the end is the same, but the individual paths are different. Jesus is calling all of us to find and use our spiritual gifts. But your spiritual gifts are different than my spiritual gifts. And even if we have the same spiritual gift, the Apostle Paul says we may use them in different ways. So the path Jesus calls me to follow, to live out the gifts He's given me, is going to be different than the path Jesus calls you to follow, to live out the gifts He's given you, even if we both have the same gifts. Then there are times our paths are going to be totally different. I'm reminded of the story of Peter and John. At the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, of course, has, has, has denied Jesus. And Jesus is restoring him. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I love you, Lord. And feed my sheep. And he goes on and, to restore him. And then Jesus, after he gets to that, he tells him, there's going to come a time in your old age. And you're, you're not going to get to go the way you want to go anymore. They're going to take you by the hand. They're going to force you to go somewhere you don't want to go. And John says this was regarding Peter's death, which history, church history and tradition tell us Peter was crucified upside down was the way he died. So Jesus was warning him the day would come when Peter's life would end badly is essentially what Jesus was saying. And so Peter looks at John and he points at him and he says, well, what about him? Right. I mean, if my life is going to end badly, is his going to end badly as well? I mean, it's almost as if Peter's saying, I'm okay." With that being my path, so long as everybody gets this same end. And Jesus' response was, what is it to you if I want him to live till I come back? You follow me. Right? Their paths, their, where they were going to go in life, how their lives were going to end, were going to be radically different. They were individually called and they were going to individual paths. And it will be that way with us. And then we have an individual accountability. Part of Jesus calling us individually is the individual accountability this brings. My response to Jesus calling me has absolutely nothing to do with your response to Jesus calling you. And your response to Jesus calling you has absolutely nothing to do with my response to Jesus calling me. What this means is, I am responsible for how I respond to Jesus' call, regardless of what you may or may not do. And you are responsible to how you respond to Jesus' call, regardless of what I may or may not do. If you don't respond to Jesus, you won't be able to say, well, Stacy didn't do those things you called him to do. And if you were to try, he would say, but you should have followed me anyway. No matter what other people do, Jesus' response to us is, you follow me. There is individual accountability. Jesus is calling us individually and we must answer individually. Secondly, Jesus calls us to single-minded obedience. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed 
by going out where God told him to go. Abraham obeyed when obedience meant leaving everything he had ever known. Abraham obeyed when obedience meant he'd have to leave family and everyone he had ever known. Abraham obeyed when obedience meant leaving a civilized city for life in tents. Abraham obeyed when obedience meant leaving his father's house and whatever inheritance his father may have left him when he died. Abraham obeyed when obedience meant following God without God giving him a complete picture of what the call would look like. God basically said to Abraham, go that way until I tell you to go another way. There was no five-year plan. There was no retirement plan. There was just go. And Abraham went. Again, Bonhoeffer refers to this as single-minded obedience. Single-minded obedience is just doing what Jesus said to do without excuse, without apology, and without delay. This is without a doubt the way Jesus calls us. We know this is the case because of His call of the twelve. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 2, records the call. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will have you to become fishers of men. And, and immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Going a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also at the boat bending their nets. Immediately He called them and they left their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and went away to follow him. And as he passed, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. But in in both of those cases, they were actively engaged in life. I mean, they were not sitting around playing playing thumb wars, trying to decide what they were going to do with their life. The first group, they were fishermen. They had jobs. Peter, from what we understand, seems to have been a partner in the business with James and John's dad. It was a successful business, we know, because they had a number of employees. And so they have just pulled in the fish load. And they are getting things squared away. And Jesus walks up and says, you follow me. And they drop their nets and they walk out of the boats and they just walk away from it all. Matthew is sitting at the receipt of of taxes. He is actively taking taxes from the people. And Jesus walks up and says, you follow me. And he stands up and he walks away. They dropped everything in order to follow Jesus. This, this is single-minded obedience. They didn't know the future. They didn't know what all it was. But the Messiah had called them, even if they didn't fully understand who He was. The Lord spoke, and they went. Now the problem with single-minded obedience, though, is it's hard. Since it's hard, what we kind of try to do is come up with ways to explain the call and the commands of Jesus in such a way our disobedience is actually obedience. But can't you imagine Abraham saying something like, clearly, God wouldn't have me to leave my family and civilization to go wander around in tents. I mean, I've got young children. I've got a son on the way. We've got among our servants, there's kids. Surely you can't expect that God would really want me to do this. Rather, what I think God wants me to do 
is live with an inward detachment toward these things so that they don't have control over my life. Or the disciples. Can't you imagine them saying, well, surely Jesus didn't mean follow me. I'm a partner in a business, a successful business. To follow an itinerant preacher and go around is, is not the way to prosperity and health and a life of ease. Matthew was already a pariah with the people because of the job he had. To get up and walk away from the Romans was to guarantee he would never get that job back. And then the Romans would hate him and the the Jews would hate him. And he could say, well, clearly Jesus wouldn't want me to walk away and have nothing. What he would say instead is, be more honest in your tax collecting. Don't try to impose extra upon the people to prosper. That's what he meant by follow me. This is, sadly, how we often respond to the call of Jesus. And as we do, we convince ourselves we are still answering Jesus' call when we're not. We're simply deceiving ourselves. Let me show you one of the greatest examples of someone who who did not respond with single-minded obedience and convinced themselves that they did. It's a familiar story. King Saul is told by God to go attack the Amalekites and kill them all. Leave nothing at all. So Saul raises his army. He goes out and he attacks and he wins a great victory. And he kills all the people except the king, Agag. And he destroys all the flock except the best of the sheep and the oxen. How did he justify this disobedience? Well, here's what the Bible says. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. For I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and completely destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things designated to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, The reasoning behind it, if you know it, sounds good. One of the ways that kings demonstrated the greatness of their God when they won a battle was by bringing the conquered king back. And so what they would do is the king would ride in on his horse and his his war horse. And as he rode in at the front, the, the conquered king would have his hands tied behind his back and would have a rope tied either around his neck or around his waist that was connected to the horse the king was on. And he was being pulled by the conquering king. And it showed his humiliation and his utter defeat. And then they would make a big sacrifice to their God. And they would thank their God for the victory they had won. So what he's saying is, I'm going to, we're doing, yes, we, we didn't kill everybody. I did keep the king. And no, we didn't kill all the animals because we kept the, the choicest, the best for this great sacrifice to, to God, right? And, and what he did was he, he didn't have that single-minded obedience. He didn't actually do what God said, but he convinced himself that his disobedience was actually obedience. How did God feel about this? Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as reprehensible as the sin of divination. 
And insubordination is as reprehensible as false religion and idolatry. Since you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. God was apparently not okay with His half-hearted obedience, His normal level of obedience, His lack of single-minded obedience. If we were to be ruthlessly honest, just with ourselves, not out loud to anybody else, just in our hearts, would we say our obedience is more like Abraham and the disciples or more like King Saul? Jesus is calling us and we must respond with single-minded obedience. Jesus calls us outside of our comfort zone. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left not knowing where he was going. God told Abraham to go to a land he would show him. Will show. Future. Abraham, if you read Genesis 12, is given remarkably few details about where he's going or what he's supposed to do. It would be the equivalent of God telling us, get in your car and drive west. How long do I drive west until I tell you to go north? Just go and I'll give you the information later. Answering God's call to a life of faith isn't going to be easy and comfortable for Abraham. He won't be able to stay in his comfort zone and answer the call to a living faith at the same time. For Abraham to answer God's call, he's going to have to leave pretty much everything he's ever known. He had to leave his father's house. Familiar with the story, his father had just died. Abraham seems to have been the eldest son and thus the inheritor of it all. And even if he is not the eldest son, he is the only son there. So he would have inherited everything that belonged to his dad. Giving Abraham's wealth, it seems reasonable to assume his dad had significant wealth as well. Abraham was called from rest to pilgrimage. In verse 9, it tells us that Abraham lived as a stranger in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He was called to trade his home for a tent. Haran was a, a civilized area. There were houses built. And he went from living in a built house to a place with, say, a market and all the things that a city in that time would have to just being a nomad, wandering on the plains. He was called to trade being home to being a stranger in a strange land. Abraham was called from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Abraham knew what life in Haran was like. He had no idea what life would be like in the unfamiliar place God would be sending him to. Living in a city was familiar. Living in tents was unfamiliar. While Hebrews doesn't tell us this, we know from the Genesis account, Abraham was 75 Sarah was 65. Personally, I find this amazing. One reason I find it so amazing is my own personality. I am a creature of habit, and I like my comfort zone and my routines. Now, I've always been like this to some extent, but the older I get, the more comfort I find in my routines and the things I I already know and am okay with. I cannot imagine being... 65 or 75 years old and then giving up everything I've ever known to all this unknown in following God. And yet that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. 
Abraham was called from living by faith to living by sight. And really, this is what it all boils down to. He was called to leave behind all he knew, all he could see, and all he could touch for the unseen promises of God. Risking it all on the fact God would keep His word, God would do what He said He would do. There was no clear plan Abraham was privy to. There was no end in sight so far as he knew. There was no retirement. There was no stopping. There was just go. And I think these things give us an idea of what what the call to a living faith is. It is a call from sitting in the comfortable chair to doing something. It's a call to leave the familiar and the comfortable to do what may be unfamiliar and uncomfortable. It is a call to leave our comfort zone. Throughout church history, throughout the God's Word, we see examples uh, of people being answering God's call and leaving their comfort zones. We could think about Moses, Pharaoh. When Moses first saw the burning bush and God began to speak and to say He was going to go and deliver His people, Moses was ecstatic. That's a wonderful idea. I'm glad. I want you to go. Moses he immediately began to make mistake, uh, excuses. I can't. I don't know enough. I stutter when I talk. For Moses to go back into the land he had fled, begin to stand before Pharaoh, say, let my people go, thus says the Lord. It was out of his comfort zone. For Moses to answer God's call, he couldn't stay in the wilderness where he was and keep his father's sheep forever. He had to rise up and go back. We can think about the priests in the book of Joshua who led the ark into the river that was overflowing its banks so that God would part the water. Now, it doesn't tell us they were uncomfortable. I'm just maybe reading into it what I think would be there. It was a bank. It was a river that was flooding. It was overflowing its banks. If you've ever seen a river like that, you know they're dangerous. They run quickly. So to carry an ark and the poles and to walk into it far enough so that all of the priests would have themselves in the water seems a dangerous decision to make. The ones who were first would have to walk far enough in. The ones at the back were in there. And the poles on the ark that carried it, they weren't just a few feet long. They were like 10, 15 feet long. So the front guys had to walk significantly deep into the water before the last guys would get in, before God would part the water. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, walking chest deep into an overflowing, raging river is not in anyone's comfort zone. And yet it's what they had to do in order to answer God's call. Paul going to the Gentiles. We, we can often forget who Paul was before he was saved. Paul was a Pharisee, a Jew, a Pharisee. The Jews didn't like the Gentiles. The Pharisees liked them even less than the average Jew did. For Paul... Who's, who said in Romans not that his he had continual sorrow in his heart for the lostness of Israel, for him to, to not really go to them as much and to focus on the Gentiles that he had been raised his whole life to believe were dogs and unworthy of God's salvation. How uncomfortable must it have been for him to overcome his prejudices, for him to focus on those who were not his brothers, those who were not his countrymen. He had to leave his comfort zone to follow God, Jesus' call. In church history, there's David Brainerd going to the natives. This is one I thought about today. David Brainerd was a, an apostle to the Indians, is what he was called, the Native Americans. And when David Brainerd went to Yale, he didn't go to be a missionary to the Native Americans. He went 
to be a congregational pastor. He envisioned himself pastoring a big church, preaching a couple of times a week, setting up in an office and writing books and studying theology. He didn't imagine going out to the plains and ministering to the Native Americans, living in tents, despite the fact he had an unknown disease at the time that was causing him great trouble, great problems, that living out on the wilderness plains made far worse. But that was God's call on his life. He had to leave the comfortable. He had to leave the familiar to go out there to minister among them. Jesus is calling us out of our comfort zones. And we must answer. He is always calling us out of our comfort zones. And then finally, Jesus calls us to an eternal perspective. Next, or not next week, we'll talk more in later when we get to verses 13 through 16 about Abraham living as a stranger in the land of promise and tents. But for now, tonight I want us to focus on verse 10. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham's focus was on God and what God would give him in the future. Yes, he had left family and friends. Yes, he had left civilization and comfort to live as a stranger in tents in a foreign land. But he did that. He he sacrificed all of that because he knew what God had for him was better than what he was leaving behind. This is an eternal perspective. It's similar to what the the, the people of Hebrews had already had. In chapter 10, it talks about them having suffered the plundering of their goods. It had been taken, but they, they suffered it with joy because they knew what Jesus would give them is greater than what they would be losing to the world. This sort of eternal perspective is critical to our being able to answer the call of Jesus. We know from our own study of God's Word, the call of Jesus is not typically a call to a life of ease. As we've just seen, it always leads us out of our comfort zone. We know from God's Word and from church history, answering the call of Jesus often leads directly to hardships. So why would we do it? Why would we answer a call that takes us out of the familiar to the unfamiliar? Why would we do it when it's difficult, scary, dangerous, and often costly? We do it because we know what Jesus is going to give us is better than anything we lose in this life. We we do it because we're looking forward to what He has for us. And we know that what He has for us then is better than anything we give up or we lose now. It's an eternal perspective. It's what we have to have. We, we must have it or we really will not live for Jesus any noticeable way, but particularly not answering the call of Jesus to a life of faith. I don't know if anyone in the Bible exemplified this better than the Apostle Paul. But one of his letters, he's in a Roman prison. He's not sure if he's going to be released or if he's going to be executed. And as he writes, he, he, uses the, he gives these words. According to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in this flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed 
from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. What what a passage. I mean, what, what a series of statements. Live or die. I'm certain Jesus is going to be glorified in my life. To live is Christ. If I live, I will live for Jesus. To die, that's even better. If I live, I'll serve. I'm not sure what choice I'd make. If if they were to walk in and say, Paul, choose. Die, we'll kill you and take you. And you can go to be with Jesus. We'll let you walk out and go serving. I don't know what choice I would make. Because it's always better to be with Jesus. But you all need me here for the time being. I mean, that's a... That's a powerful, eternal perspective. Now, we, we know from other passages, Paul had sacrificed a lot. Everything about following Jesus, answering the call, had cost him. It took him out of his comfort zone. It cost him his family. It cost him his job. It cost him his reputation. He was beaten, and all of these horrible things happened to him throughout his life. And yet, still, to live as Christ, to die, is gain. That, that is the kind of eternal perspective we should long to have. And I say long to have because, I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I could say those things and be true that that's really how I feel. I mean, I know it's right, right? I mean, I know to, to go be with Jesus is better. I know that. I know if I live, I'm going to serve Him as long as I live to the best of my abilities. But if someone were to come in and say, choose, I'll kill you and you can go be with Jesus or you can just live and walk out of here. I mean, I don't know that I would say I'm hard pressed between the two. I'm pretty sure I know what choice I'd make. So this is, this is, I think, a goal. This is the, the kind of perspective we, we should want to have. We should strive for. We can have it because Paul had it, but it, it's something to strive for. But it wasn't just Paul that had this sort of Eternal perspective. People all throughout church history have had that same sort of a mindset. One of my heroes of the faith is is a missionary named Dr. David Livingston. He was a doctor, but he chose to go to Africa to explore and to try to evangelize. He spent most of his life separated from his family. He was beaten by because he opposed the slave trade, so he was beaten by slavers. He was attacked by lions. One of his arms had been crushed in a lion's mouth. He had he went through just a lot of pain and agony, sickness in his life and in his ministry in Africa. And in 1857, he addressed the students at Cambridge. And here's what he said. See if you can spot an eternal perspective. For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, 
suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. That is an eternal perspective. Jesus is calling us, and we must answer with an eternal perspective. Now, Abraham, by faith, answered yes to all of these. He would answer God's call. He would live with single-minded obedience. He would leave his comfort zone, and he would look forward to what God would give him. What about us? How are we going to respond to the call of Jesus? I'm going to give you four questions to think through. How is Jesus calling me now? He's calling all of us in one way or another. So right now in this moment, today in our lives, what is Jesus calling us? How? In what ways? In light of Jesus calling us right now, what does a response of single-minded obedience look like for me? I mean, if I were to, to obey and go out like Abraham did, what would that look like? What would right now that single-minded obedience look like in my life? In what ways does my own comfort zone hold me back? And then how should I respond considering eternity? These aren't like, I don't think we're going to sit down and in a minute we have it all. Maybe. I think these are more questions to work through, to think through. Because far better is spend time thinking and meditating and responding than making a a quick emotional type response that doesn't last. Think through. What does it look like? What are we being called to? How do I need to respond? Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us to hear the voice of Jesus calling us. Whatever He's calling us to, whatever He's calling us to be, whatever He's calling us to do, let us know for sure it's Him, that He's speaking to us individually. He's calling us to a path He wants us to follow. Guide us when we hear the voice of our Savior to respond in single-minded obedience. The world would have us convince ourselves disobedience is obedience, but we know it's not. And let us not deceive ourselves in this way. Our comfort zones hold us. My comfort zone holds me. Away with such things, Father. Help us to listen to the call and to answer leaving our comfort zones and in whatever way that would be. We know the leaving our comfort zone isn't always going to be to go to deepest, darkest Africa and fight the slave traders and the lions. It, it may be to leave a life of sin. It may be to go and talk to our neighbor about Jesus. It, it may be to... To take a next step in our service and devotion to you. We don't know. It doesn't always have to be these things like with Dr. Livingston, with David Brainerd. But our comfort zone affects most of our lives. And whatever you're calling us to do, it's going to make us uncomfortable. Let us go. 
And open our minds to the greatness of what you have for us. Open our minds to the greatness of the reward we'll have in Christ. Open our minds to understand when we stand before Jesus and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We're not going to wish in that moment we had stayed here and and held on to more comforts and conveniences. We're not going to miss the stuff that right now is our comfort zone and holding us back. Give us this sort of an eternal perspective that we would... Lose all, if need be. Forsake all, if that's the call. But just do all, because Jesus is greater. Work this first in me, and as the pastor, let me lead by example. Let our church be a church that lives this way in Guymon, Goodwill, Hooker, and Texoma. So we would advance your kingdom and bring you glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.